Well, it's the He Mind Pulse, and we have two newcomers to the He Mind Pulse, the podcast that is focused exclusively on hematologic um, disorders uh, and more, uh, more, more focused on hematologic malignancies. I would say uh, today's podcast really we are going to talk about something rather important and critical, which is what we have heard about in the press, in the news um, about secondary malignancies from CAR T cellular therapy. And with that, I have two amazing physicians and investigators who are going to simplify things for us and tell us exactly how we separate the signal from the noise. So uh, Jay, Dr. Spiegel, we'll start with you, a little bit about you and what you do, where you do it, and um, what got you, by the way, into him? Uh, sure. So um, I'm Jay Spiegel. I'm initially from uh, Toronto, Canada. And um, I initially got interested in oncology by taking a biology of cancer class uh, at York University, where I went for undergrad. And then um, I uh, became more interested in uh, liquid oncology, mostly because I had an experience with my mother-in-law dying of breast cancer, and it was really, uh, I would say, rather traumatic for me. So I just became uh, more interested in liquid tumors. And then I went to Stanford for fellowship, uh, had the opportunity to work with Dr. David Miklos, um, really around the time that CAR-T was, was approved and in coming into commercial practice. And so I had the opportunity to work with him in the building um, of the uh, you know, trial pipeline at Stanford and also looking at some of the correlative science that we were doing there. So I became really passionate about that. And uh, now I do uh, CAR-T and transplantation at the University of Miami. That's great. Welcome to the show, uh, Jay. Appreciate you taking time of your busy schedule. And then we have Dr. Sorab Dahia. Uh, so a little bit about you, Sorab, and um, and where you yeah. do what you do and what got you into him. Yeah, absolutely. Pleasure to be on, uh, Shadi. Uh, 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 my name is Saurabh Dahia. I'm an academic hematologist, oncologist, transplant physician here at Stanford University. Uh, I'm originally from uh, India. I've trained all over the country, both East Coast and West Coast. Uh, did my uh, part of my training at Tufts uh, with the, in, in Hemant and uh, did further training in subspecialization at Stanford. Uh, Currently serve as the uh, clinical director for the CAR-T program, and I'm also an associate professor of medicine. What got me into hematology and, uh, was the curative potential of these therapies. I think that's what I would say. Uh, uh, and the fact that the science uh, in early 2010s was evolving rapid, very rapidly in uh, hematologic oncology space. Uh, so yeah, it's the combination of curative potential uh, with the therapies that are offered for heme malignancies and the rapid uh, scientific progress that was being made and is still being made in heme malignancies. And I think, you know, one of these scientific... So you guys met at Stanford? Yes. Okay. Well, I, ironically, Sarab was the fellow working for David before I got there. So I sort of... <laughs> I, I filled his footsteps. Yeah, basically... But uh, speaking of advances, I think we can all agree that CAR-T cellular therapy, it's probably one of the most major advances in, in cancer and currently mainly in hematologic malignancies. Certainly there are many patients who are cured and walking around today because of CAR-T therapy, otherwise they wouldn't have. 
So we're not going to focus on that, though, because that would be an episode by itself talking about CAR-T and efficacy. We're going to focus on what we heard around the time of ASH, that there is some association, I'll start with that, between CAR-T and um, secondary malignancies. Jay, why don't we start, just tell us what we heard. Like, tell us, when was the first time you heard this? Were you involved in the data that looked at this? Just tell us how did this all come about? Because I just read about this, uh, you know, in the Ash book and on uh, Twitter. Yeah, so uh, I would say first that uh, Sarb and I are involved in the U.S. Lymphoma CAR-T Consortium. So we were looking uh, at patients treated early with AxiCell, one of the CAR-T products uh, approved for diffuse RD-cell lymphoma as well as uh, follicular lymphoma. But we were looking at long-term follow-up uh, for those patients, and we actually looked for secondary malignancies, and we reported uh, at ASH uh, in our presentation that we had 9% of patients who experienced the secondary malignancy, and 5% of those uh, were therapy-related uh, myeloid malignancies. So we were coming at it, you know, both Sarb and I, from the perspective of looking at uh, our data in AxiCell patients. Uh, but like you were mentioning, right before uh, ASH, there was uh, an FDA report uh, of association of T-cell lymphomas uh, with CAR-T therapy. Uh, there were reported 19 cases, 12 were associated with a variety of the commercially approved CARs. So um, in large cell lymphoma and B-cell space, that would be AxiCell, Tisacel, and Lysacel, as well as in multiple myeloma, the two approved CARs being Idacel and Siltacel. All five had cases reported to FAIRS, uh, and then there were seven additional cases uh, for a CAR-T product that is likely investigational, which we don't uh, don't have further information on. But that, uh, I think, set off a bit of a firestorm because obviously uh, the way that CAR-Ts uh, are created is that there's genomic data inserted uh, into the genome of the T-cell. And obviously, uh, there's a risk for insertional mutagenesis where this uh, genomic data is inserted into an area of the genome where it can turn on the T-cell and sort of perhaps potentially turn it into a cancer itself. And so I think that is why everybody was so concerned about the report. But I think Sara perhaps can give a little more info as to why I think we have to take that a little bit of a, a grain of salt. Sara, before we go there, though, um, what Jay mentioned is that you guys are involved in the U.S. Lymphoma Consortium, and you are already looking at this. And Jay, you mentioned what? You saw 19 cases? We uh, had 9% nine, 9 of the 275 treated patients had a secondary malignancy. Uh, and it was some patients had solid tumors. So we had multiple uh, patients who uh, had unique solid tumors like Merkel cell, um, peritoneal mesothelioma, for example. Um, but then the majority, the bulk of those cases so 5% of the 275 were therapy-related myeloid malignancies, primarily MDS and AML. So out of 275, you know, 5% secondary malignancies, that's about, you know, you know, 12, uh, 13 patients, uh, something like that, or, or maybe 15 patients, something like yeah, that. Yeah, 15, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sora, put this for us in perspective. Is this too much? I mean, obviously, every therapy that we give 
has a downside. Nothing is, there is no free lunch, unfortunately. Um, it's 5% a lot. Yeah. So I think just uh, to elaborate even further, and, and uh, I'll uh, bring it to clinical context as well. Uh, I think when the the warning that was issued in late November uh, was around T-cell lymphoma, and there were about uh, 19 cases that were reported uh, through just direct reporting to the agency or through this various mechanism, mechanism that, was, that was there. So 19 cases was reported there. Uh, subsequently, uh, th there has been also an additional concern about having secondary malignancy, particularly myeloid neoplasms. So I would bucket into two categories. One is T-cell lymphomas, another one is uh, secondary myeloid malignancies, uh, or what we usually have referred to as therapy-related myeloid neoplasms. In T-cell lymphoma, uh, there's this, the biggest concern since the beginning of the CAR-T field has been the risk of insertional mutagenesis, that the CAR-T gene goes, that the transgene goes into the genome, as Jay mentioned, and leads to a disruptive oncogene, and then the T-cell itself just proliferates out of control, and the T-cell becomes uh, uh, malignant. Uh, that has been seen about three times in the entire literature, two times with transposons, uh, which was a completely different technology. It's a heavy gene that is inserted uh, in, in multiple uh, multiple uh, in copy number uh, insertions that are made, uh, and then one case with Carvic T. But overall, there has been this report of about 17 or 18 cases of non-CAR positive T-cell lymphoma in thousands of patients that have been treated. Then there's a risk of secondary myeloid neoplasm or secondary MDS, and that is uh, on the label of now certain CAR-T products like Siltacel. Among our data set, our, uh, which was the long-term follow-up of the U.S. consortium, about 275 patients were enrolled in that, followed longitudinally over a long time. Uh, and there we saw about 5% cases of all uh, secondary primary uh, neoplasms. And there was one case of T-cell lymphoma. So to put into comparison, these are the patients who are heavily pretreated. These are the patients who have received, in our data set, median of four prior lines of therapy. About a third had prior auto. So they are heavily pretreated patients. Uh, and as such, they were already have this risk of having these uh, um, uh, myeloid genotoxic injury from all this prior exposure. So uh, it, is, it is a risk that is there, uh, and it's likely a result of prior therapies that are that are that are that were given to the patient uh it is hard to say at this particular time that we have enough evidence to say that car itself is implicated in development of myeloid malignancies i think something this which we'll have to counsel the patients now for but it's hard to say based on the evidence that we have that it is directly implicated in development of at least non-t-cell myeloid malignancies I, I can understand that the prior therapies, prior transplants, and the heavy pre-therapies might lead to secondary myeloid malignancies. That I, I get. 
I'm not sure I can understand why would that lead to T-cell lymphoma. I think you should be able to tell whether the T-cell lymphoma is from the CAR product itself versus not, because you have, uh, you can do the, right? I mean, I think yeah. the, it seems like the T-cell lymphoma piece is indeed related to the CAR. Jay, am I onto something here or no? So I think the the thing that we have to be a little bit careful about is that there is an association of T development of T cell lymphoma just by having B cell lymphoma, and with the amount of patients treated with commercial CAR, it is in theory possible that some of these T cell lymphomas arose because these are patients that already have underlying risk factors to develop the T cell lymphoma. I agree with you that in a perfect world, it would be easy to determine if we had the biopsy available and we could test, like you said, for the CAR transgene by staining, by next-generation sequencing, we could ultimately prove whether uh, the CAR inserting into the genome was actually causing the T-cell lymphoma. I suspect, based on how these T-cell cases were reported, that we, we don't have that. As far as what each company has published publicly, they said in the cases that they are aware of and that they've tested, they've not identified the CAR um, in any of these cases causing T-cell lymphoma. You know, take that with a grain of salt. It is coming from them. But um, I think there there is a risk for developing T-cell lymphoma even without CAR-T. That also should be accounted for. But certainly it's something we need to keep following patients for. Sir, can't we prove positively or negatively that the T-cell was caused by the CAR versus associated? Yeah. So if you have uh, a T-cell lymphoma after receipt of a CAR, uh, there are very specific ways. You could do PCR sequencing of the tumor. Uh, you could do staining of the tumor. There are very precise ways that are laid out by the FDA where you can clearly tease out whether it's a CAR positive T-cell lymphoma or insertional metagenesis leading to T-cell lymphoma. That is a very well-established pathway. In all these 19 cases that were reported, with the exception of one case with Silta cell, there has not been any other case that at least through these uh, it, 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 these 18, uh, sorry, 19 cases that are described, which had CAR-positive lymphoma. And the manufacturers of these drugs have come on record on saying that they haven't they haven't they haven't seen that they haven't seen CAR positive lymphoma. So one Silta cell case, Restar, one could assume they're non-CAR positive T cell lymphoma, which is likely because this increased risk of development of T cell lymphoma after having a diagnosis of B cell malignancy. There's a seared publication that is quite talked about now, which talks about bidirectional risk increase uh, increased bidirectional risk of developing a subsequent B versus T-cell malignancy a five-fold uh, if you had a basically prior uh, B-cell malignancy. Are these, are these, hold, I mean, the, the FDA, let's talk about the FDA. The FDA report was all in patients with, who have prior B-cell lymphoma. None of these were myeloma or anything like that. There were a few with myeloma. Those both, but it was, yeah. it was mostly B-cell malignancies, but there, I believe, are two or three with multiple myeloma. Okay, so basically, the development of T-cell lymphoma is not necessarily related specifically only to patients with prior lymphoma. Am I correct? 
Based on the report, yes, you're correct. There are some in multiple myeloma, yep. Jay, tell us about the report a little bit. When you read the report, what did you help the listeners and viewers understand uh, more details about the FDA report? Yeah, so I mean, I think that the, the FDA said that they have reports of T-cell lymphoma after CAR therapy, including cases of CAR-positive lymphoma. So that was how the... Uh, that was how the message uh, was publicized. So I think the, the thing that we don't know is we don't know how many of them actually have done the testing that Sarab mentioned to conclusively prove that there is CAR-positive lymphoma cells, meaning that there are 19 cases reported in FAERS. Remember, FAERS can be uh, anybody reporting into it. It can be uh, a physician, it can be even a patient. So it's hard to know exactly, you know, from our standpoint, what these cases are at the moment. You know, all we know is from the press release that there are these 19 cases, including CAR positive lymphoma. We know of the Silta cell case because it was submitted to ASH and they had very definitive um, uh, information that they had CAR positive cells uh, in the lymphoma sample. So I think we can conclusively say that is CAR mediated. But as far as the other ones, we know that there's T cell lymphoma post CAR, but we don't actually know if the testing was conducted to find CAR positivity in the cell, in the cancer cells. So are there any, anything like pre CAR T clinical characteristics, disease characteristics? car product, uh, whatever it is that puts you at a higher risk. Because um, I want to understand the clinical context of this. Like, I mean, I, is, I mean, these are patients who don't have a lot of treatment options. However, we are moving CAR-T earlier in the course of disease now, right? I mean, I think in lymphoma, you know, there are obviously reports that you could use that better than autotransplant in relapse disease early on. So, so I think there are implications. So first of all, my first question, clinical characteristics, disease characteristics that put you at higher risk of developing T-cell lymphoma, and then take us into what does that mean as we take CAR-T earlier in the course of lymphoid malignancies, and then we can talk about myeloma as well. Yeah, excellent question, uh, Shadi. So first thing I would say is uh, regarding uh, a uh, sort of like a uh, risk factor for developing T-cell lymphoma, I think at this particular time, it's very early on to understand about, I mean, it's such few cases, only less than 20 cases described out of close to 35,000 patients. So a total of 35,000 patients have been infused in the, uh, 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 around the world and only uh, less than 20 patients have been reported. So the numbers are so small. And one would say that, uh, maybe because of the reporting was not that great, uh, maybe there's more cases. An argument could actually be made on the other side, uh, thinking about reporting bias, that if somebody had T-cell lymphoma after CAR, which has been a sort of a uh, concern all along, uh, those cases will be reported. So maybe there's over-reporting here, or maybe appropriate reporting, I would say. Uh, so I think at this particular time, uh, we don't know or have a clear idea about 
what the denominator or even the numerator is, is to come to a specific conclusion about what the risk factors would be. We clearly know certain methodologies like, for example, as I mentioned earlier about transposone-based uh, viral methods of integration of, 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 of CAR gene introduction to the T-cell have risk, which are clearly established just based on how much of a payload is delivered into the target T-cell. Uh, that has been very well uh, shown uh, by Australian group. Uh, second thing is about this risk of, uh, at least in this the Silta cell patient that was that has been talked about, where in the T-cell itself, there were mutations that were present beforehand which is I mean, online-only publication, unfortunately. The most important story of ASH was uh, online-only, uh, which talks about uh, that the patient having TET2 and JAK3 mutations pre-existing. And the insertional mutagenesis happened at this gene called PBX2, which is completely unrelated. So uh, uh, maybe th there's, uh, th 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 there's high... Uh, uh, in this particular case, is uh, unrelated uh, uh, this CAR positive lymphoma to uh, to the to the, to the CAR uh, to, that it's not a truly insertion mutagenesis event, but rather patient had pre-existing existing, uh, clonal mutation that led to the development. So you, know, you mentioned the denominator and numerator. That's actually very interesting because if I'm a patient, you cannot tell me what the percent possibility of me getting T cell lymphoma. Can you? Well, I think what we can say, so I would also, I would uh, refer your listeners to uh, uh, a nature medicine commentary written by uh, Bruce Levine and colleagues, which are our cell therapy leaders. Um, and, and what they essentially say is, is like what Sarah mentioned, is that we have around 20 reported cases. They may be CAR mediated, they may not be CAR mediated, but we have 35,000 patients infused. We have CIBMTR reporting and they have reporting of over 10,000 patients that they've been following longitudinally, at the very least, that's like an undercount. And they're not seeing development of these T-cell lymphomas. So we feel, I would say, as a field, we feel relatively reassured that the risk of T-cell lymphoma, we can talk about the MDS in a bit, but uh, the risk of T-cell lymphoma, while real, appears to be quite low. And I think that the reporting for these patients as far as follow-up was supposed to be 15 years, even with the FDA approval. So we have already been under a mandate to follow these patients for 15 years, specifically for development of these secondary problems. And I think that will remain very important. But I think based on where we are now, uh, the T-cell lymphoma story does not change how we approach the use of CAR-T across both diseases where they're approved. Have you seen the T-cell lymphoma in CAR-T that was given for myeloma, Sorb? I have, uh, at our institution, I have not seen, uh, with the exception of one T-cell lymphoma uh, post-CAR, I've not seen any other lymphoma okay. in my practice. No. Okay. The T-cell lymphoma data, obviously, I mean, we commend the FDA for reporting this. This is important. Jay suggests that this will have no barring on the clinical applicability of, of uh, CAR T cellular therapy 
do you share the same view or are you concerned that this might actually, because again, you're balancing efficacy and toxicity. And I think we all agree if it's end of the line, you just take your chances. But if we're going to move things early and early, then the, the, the calculation changes. Right. No, absolutely. I think uh, this is something that, again, patient definitely needs to be counseled about. And of course, it, the, uh, I mean, if you are pentarefractory myeloma or if you're third, fourth line lymphoma, uh, the calculation of benefit-risk ratio is very, very different. But even based on the data that, that has been shared by the FDA, these uh, 20 cases out of 35,000 cases, uh, the number looks so small, uh, like it's basically uh, extremely rare, probably even lower than the general pop general population, healthy population based on uh, uh, the, the incidence of T-cell lymphoma that has been reported in this particular uh, FDA warning. That it doesn't, if it doesn't, it doesn't change uh, my my calculation and. Uh, thinking about offering CAR T cell therapy for our patients uh, is a fairly low risk uh, event that has been described. Certainly, Ash put it as an online presentation, so they did not think it's worthy even of a poster. So, <laughs> well, uh, not yeah. the <laughs> no, I understand. Jay, yeah. were, were there, I would say that there, I would say that the Shadi, I think that was a miscalculation, to be honest. I mean, I think that's the only important part of this whole story. But that that insertional mutagenesis leading to development of T cell malignancy can happen, and that has been the worry since the beginning of CAR T field, and probably the most important story of this entire uh, past several years uh, was and uh, was a was a was a very limited information that was provided to the field. Uh, so, with the exception of that, I think this other nineteen cases that are described, I feel as they would, they are, that's the general baseline rate of development of T cell lymphoma. Yeah. Well, Ash doesn't think it's important. But Jay, <laughs> were, were you surprised with the, uh, how Ash, did, I mean, I don't know. I, I was, honestly, I, I wouldn't have heard about it if I just relied on the Ash uh, thing. It's talking to colleagues like you and others that, that made me aware of this. Well, uh, you're putting my head on the guillotine here. Uh, <laughs> I think that, um, had the FDA notice been put out three months before, it would have potentially been a plenary, right? So, I mean, I think it just it just points to the fact that, uh, you know, as, as a trainee, sometimes even if you get a poster, you still may have the most important uh, piece of information at a national meeting. And, you know, uh, things are selected for a whole variety of reasons. And we, we need to, we need to look for the important data wherever it is. I think that's, that's my takeaway. Let's talk about the MDS and AML uh, sort of a little bit. Tell us uh, denominator, uh, numerator. I mean, do we know a little bit more about that, uh, taking T-cell lymphoma aside? Yeah, so that is a, uh, again, different. Uh, it's, it's the same. People are sort of like conflating these two things. So I think it's important to talk about and in, in sort of like in separation. Uh and the risk of therapy-related myeloid neoplasm or uh, the subsequent uh, myeloid neoplasm is, has, has clearly emerged uh, in post-CAR-T population. In our own data set, Jay, Jay reported at ASH last year, 
we had about 5% of the patients who developed uh, these uh, therapy-related MDS, uh, a median follow-up of about close to five years. Uh, at Based on uh, the CIBMTR reporting, the data that was mentioned uh, briefly in the Nature Medicine commentary by Levine et al., which, where they talk about uh, 11,000 patients in the registry data being available at CIBMTR, about 88,000 patients there participated in this post-authorization safety study pass uh, pathway. And out of those, uh, about a total of uh, 842 patients at the overall incidence of 7.6% developed a second primary neoplasm. Of those, probably about, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's all this not reported, one would estimate that the, it, it includes solid tumor as well as a uh, secondary myeloid neoplasm. So that number probably would be about 5%. And that is somewhat similar to what we saw in our consortium too, of about 5%. Why it happens is a big question, uh, something that we are we still need to study. If, uh, as I said earlier on, most of these patients are heavily pretreated, uh, genotoxic injury by prior alkylating chemotherapy, uh, prior autologous transplant, which itself has a risk of about anywhere from 5 to 20% uh, risk of uh, therapy-related myeloid neoplasms. Uh, and then, uh, the, uh, the, the, then the fact that uh, these patients may have pre-existing uh, chip mutations that just expands clonally in post-CAR T setting in the basically an immune-compromised uh, patient leading to development of MDS is something that needs to be established. So it's a multifactorial thing, thing from prior treatment, uh, prior uh, uh, chemotherapy, prior autotransplant uh, that may be contributing. It's it's hard to tease out at this particular time whether it's uh, uh, solely can be attributed to CAR-T or not. Do you have any concern about the uh, J in terms of do you see this regardless of the CAR-T construct, um, regardless yeah. of the disease? And then do you believe that this will have any hindering on the utilization, the clinical utilization of the products? So I think that the, the second FDA notice that came out in the past several weeks was uh, an amendment to the silta cell label where there was an incidence of about 10% Second, myeloid malignancies, MDS, and AML on the CARTITUDE-1 study, which led to the approval of Siltacel. So uh, 10 out of 97 patients developed a TMN. And so I think that what raised people's concerns was whether that was a rate that would be higher than expected. So I think, um, you know, what Sarb mentioned, what we saw in our data set and what seems to be uh, reported across the CABMTR data for um, for all constructs, but primarily most of the patients in there are going to be lymphomas uh, of about somewhere about 5% TMN, I think is very important, um, but could be similar, uh, again, as Sarah mentioned, to rates that we see after auto. So um, there's a study from one of our colleagues, uh, Brian Hill, uh, from Cleveland Clinic, and when they looked at patients treated with auto in the late 1990s, early 2000s, the rate of second myeloid malignancy was about 5%. So I think the, the big question is, like you asked, as we move 
earlier lines of therapy, when we're obviating the need for auto, uh, are we going to see that TMN is still a big problem with CAR and therefore we should have some reservations? You know, the data for those studies is still early, right? The follow-up for Zuma 7 and Transform for approval of second-line CAR in large cell lymphoma is about four years. Uh, we haven't seen a big signal uh, in TMNs there, but I think that's certainly where we can study um, whether this question uh, can be answered, whether it's really CAR-driven, like Starb said, are we going to have the immunosuppressive environment post-CAR lead to outgrowth of myeloid clones, and therefore TMN will be a bigger problem? Or by treating patients earlier and having less pre-therapy, are we going to have less TMN? And I think, you know, thankfully, we have randomized studies uh, that, were, uh, that were carried out. Obviously, the numbers are not huge, but it gives us a basis uh, to get a readout on that exact question. And then I think what I would also say is that particularly in lymphoma, there's been, I would say, a migration. A lot of our patients are being treated in the second line. So we'll have a, some follow-up data from the second line patients in the next couple of years that will also help answer that. Um, sorry, I'm being long-winded, but I was trying to... No, no, no. This is really... Uh, I think and, and Saurabh is going to comment. Go ahead, Saurabh. The only thing, I, uh, in addition to this, I mean, Jay's excellent uh, uh, comments, uh, one thing I would also say is that in the late-line setting, uh, this whole concept that uh, that we do, we did not really have options for these patients uh, before CAR T-cell therapy. These are really end-of-the-line patients, uh, and we really cannot have the right comparison to understand what is the baseline rate of these secondary malignant neoplasts, these secondary uh, MDSs that we would expect, because these patients would be would, would not be alive otherwise. This whole concept of immortal time bias, that now the patients are getting therapies, they're living longer, they're staying alive, and they're staying alive on sometimes these studies where they're getting these study-mandated procedures like bone marrow biopsies and getting diagnosed with these myeloid neoplasms is, is definitely uh, playing into this. I mean, these patients, for example, for myeloma in pentadifractory setting, these patients' median survival was about three months before CAR-T was approved. In lymphoma, the median survival was about six months before CAR-T was approved. So these patients would not be alive otherwise uh, in, in the, if they did not get CAR-T uh, to even develop to even develop these uh, secondary neoplasms. So my last question to both of you is, is anything else you'd like to add and what are next steps? Like, are you working? Because I love the what actually Jane mentioned we already have several prospective randomized clinical trials that were published, right, last year in the NEJM and others. Would be great if there's data from there, although maybe a little bit too early, but but that's really a huge opportunity. So I don't want to put words in your mouth. Next steps uh, for you, Jay, and other things uh, I may have failed to ask you about, and the same applies to Saurabh. Uh, why don't you start, Jay? Sure. I mean, I think the one uh, thing that... Uh, you know, I think we wanted to mention, but may, might not have spent an, as much time on. So the 10% for cell is a loss. Um, like Sarb said, very heavily preached. We don't know um, what contribution CAR could have to that, but it's it's the big number. Um, cell does differ from the other CARs in that it uses uh, 
a different single chain variable fragment. It actually uses two heavy chains. So it's uh, a heavy chain based on, on a llama actually versus a mouse for the, uh, for the other cars. Um, and my clinical experience with Siltacel is that it, it is quite a, a wild ride, I would say. The car expansion is quite unique. It's very, very high. The inflammation uh, that we see after it with HLH and things like that, to me, without having, I would say, the data to back it up yet, appears to be a little bit different um, than the other cars. So I think that is interesting to note. I don't think necessarily that I have any proof that Siltacel is mediating uh, a higher rate of TMN, but I think it is worth noting that it is a little bit of a different car and the car process seems to be a little bit more inflammatory. Um, we do have those second line studies. So in preparation of today, I looked, looked this up, but in, in Karma 3 and in Cartitude 4, which are the second line studies of both Idacel and Siltacel respectively, there were uh, two, per, two patients with TMN on each study, but the follow-up is only about 18 months, like you mentioned. But I do think Cartitude 4 is already ongoing for Siltacel and will play a role in answering the question of what happens if it moves into second line. I suspect that even though that study was quite positive, I think that there will be reticence to approve it in the second line based on the data that we're seeing. I think the FDA will probably ask for more follow-up. That's conjecture. Um, as far as what Tarb and I are doing about uh, the risk of TMN, we are forming a, a similar consortium in the second line, uh, smaller, but we're going to try and take a look uh, at patients treated in the second line with AxiCell to see if we can tease out a similar uh, TMN profile and uh, and see see whether we can help answer that question. It's great. Saurabh, same question to you. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think, I mean, Biologically, I think we're just, I mean, from a scientific standpoint, we're still trying to answer why some of these patients developed uh, who got CAR and had sardopenias, had chip clones, and they expanded uh, after getting the CAR. So it is, it's, it's the, the mechanism of sardopenias and mechanism of development of MDS is something that uh, will need to be developed over time and we'll need to tease out scientifically how much of it is was there, these uh, injuries were, how many of these uh, chip mutations were there to begin with, and how much uh, uh, of them translated to a clinical diagnosis of uh, a myeloid neoplasm. Uh, overall, I have to conclude, I would say that it is, past two months have been uh, busy, busier than usual, and a lot of it has to do with uh, answering patients' questions. Uh, there is a lay media report which is tremendous amount of reporting that shows uh, and that that talks about uh, this. Uh, this is really the first negative news uh, in CAR-T field that has come out uh, uh, and really created a lot of anxiety for patients. I mean, patients are losing sleep over it, thinking that now they're out five years and suddenly they will develop this T-cell lymphoma or MDS. And the way we are counseling our patients is that the T-cell lymphoma risk is fairly low and uh, is I mean, based on what was reported, it's extremely low, uh, one in uh, one in five thousand, or even lower than that, uh, uh, 
for T cell lymphoma for myeloid neoplasm. Uh, at this at this time, uh, we, uh, we we are we are we are watching these patients and considering doing marrow biopsies uh, to see whether they truly have MDS or not and intervene early if we need to. But it is hard to say whether CAR T is directly implicated, directly attributed to development of these myeloid neoplasms. I think we heard you loud and clear, and this was extremely helpful. I hope a lot of folks listen to this episode. It's uh, very informative being able to understand uh, what has happened over the past couple of months. And uh, I would love to have you again before the next ASH meeting in 2024, because by then several months have passed and, and hopefully there's a lot of information that uh, you'll be able to share with our viewers and listeners. Uh, Dr. Jay Spiegel and Dr. Saurabh Dahia, thank you so much for coming on the Human Pulse. Thank you.